Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Nicole Galland, author of the new novel, Master of the Revels, A Return to Neil Stevenson's Dodo. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's lovely to be here. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, how would you describe Master of the Rebels? Wow, you know, I I really should have a, an elevator pitch for this, but I get so excited about it that I end up, you know, spending half an hour describing it. The, for people that have read the book that it is the sequel to, The Rise and Fall of Dodo, it's very easy to describe. It's simply the sequel. Um, the the world that the both of the books exist in is one in which time travel is possible under certain circumstances involving magic, but magic is not always possible in the contemporary world. And um, there are, there's a witch who wants to undo technology in order to preserve magic. And she is using time travel to do that. See, when I go off like this, it really, it really does. Um, There's a witch who's trying to undo technology and she's doing it by going back in time and reverse engineering um, the development of technology. And the people who count as our heroes are trying to stop her by following her back in time and trying to prevent her from doing the reverse engineering of technology. That sounds good. Well, how did the original collaboration with Neil come about? So uh, Neil and I were just talking about this last night, actually. We we hit an event together. Um, Neil woke up one morning uh, around Thanksgiving a few years ago and suddenly had this premise in his mind that he thought would be fun to sort of build out into a whole world and a whole novel. And it had to do with the relationship between magic and technology and the role that time travel played in that and or rather the role that those two things played in time travel and he he had so many other projects going on that he didn't really have a time to sort it all out as his own project and he and I had worked together before on a on something called the Mongoliad that was the two of us and five other writers and he knew my work as an historical novelist so he reached out to me and said would you be interested in developing this with me here's the basic premise and uh, we just started talking and ideas came fast and furious and uh, we we took it from there. And then we co-wrote it while living on opposite sides of the country. Um, it, it actually worked incredibly smoothly. The joke when it came time to go on tour was that we we should invent stories about having had fights or something. So we would have something to talk about when people asked us, what was it like working together? Because <laughs> it was so... It was sort of uninteresting to talk about. It just worked so smoothly. And um, by the end of it, he trusted me to take the intellectual property that was his, you know, the, the, the sand around which the pearl formed is his sand. And then we sort of formed the pearl together. But he, when I said, I have this idea, I'm not sure. And he said, oh, it sounds brilliant. Take it, run with it. You have my blessing. Um, so, so then I, I went to, we have the same agent and the same editor and I went to them and said, what do you think about this? And they said, oh, that sounds like a hoot. Definitely. Let's do it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, did he have any input prior to publication on this novel as opposed to the first one that you co-wrote? In a sense, he, he sort of, he stepped in at a couple of different places at the beginning. I went 
to hang out with him for a few days just to make sure that the two of us were totally on the same page about everything that was the case at the end of the book. So that if I were to, one of the things that's cool about the first book is that it's really an origin myth and you can have many different stories. Like it is possible that somebody else could come along and say, I would like to write a series of adventures in which this character goes and does these other things to try to prevent the reverse engineering of technology. So it, it, it is, it's potentially a platform open to many. And because of that, I wanted to make sure that I was leaping off the platform in a way that would respect the platform. So he was instrumental at the beginning when I was forming thoughts as, as a sounding board for me to say, okay, I want X to happen. Please reassure me that I'm not breaking the rules that we've created together. So that he was helpful that way. And then when I was about halfway through, I, um, I sent him what I had and said, can you nudge me in any particular direction? Are there certain things you think that I should keep in mind? And he was great that way. Um, that's great. Yeah. Well, what is it about time travel that intrigues you as a concept? I think, I think it's the, the constant sense of what if, what if, if only, and time travel is a, time travel is a device that can be used in so many different ways. The way in which we are using it, both in the first book and then the way that I continue to use it in the second book, really springs from the grain of sand that was Neil's idea, which has to do with the multiverse, the premise that there isn't a universe, that there is a multiverse, that at any given moment, many, many different things could happen. And depending on if you make one choice versus another, the universe evolves in a different way. But the premise of the multiverse is that you actually make both choices. And so the universe is simultaneously evolving in two different realities or multiple different realities. And then, of course, if you, if you multiply that by all of the humans, all of the sentient beings and all of the choices that they make from moment to moment, there are an infinite number of strands of a multiverse in existence at, at the moment. So the way that I like to think of magic is you can cause something to happen that isn't really happening because you reach through the multiverse, grab it from another strand and pull it back into this strand. Um, and I, I know that that's very, it's very abstract when you're not actually making it a specific event, but that was the premise for the magic. And then the time travel on the multiple strands allows this fun sort of Groundhog Day scenario to exist where if you want to change something in the present day, you have to go back in time multiple times on different strands of the multiverse to essentially try to convince the multiverse that the strand that you're in should resemble other strands because of things you've done in the past. It's very... This is this is the part where I'm I feel a little inarticulate. Um it's, it's <laughs> so much better to to experience it embodied in the story that's actually happening. Great. Well, now that you've written the second novel, do you have ideas or plans for a third one? Um I definitely have some ideas and when I was writing the second one I was laying down tracks for places that it could develop and evolve. Um and and one of the things that's so fun about this premise is 
whatever I feel like writing about, I can just send Gronyush, that's the witch that wants to reverse engineer technology. I can just she I can just have her come up with something that's said in the Amazon before Columbus arrived, or that's said in Australia at the moment of first contact, or that's set back in Florence in the Renaissance because I love that era, or back in Shakespeare's London because I love that era. Anything that I want to write about, I can just send her off to do something nefarious and then our heroes have to go after her to try to prevent her from doing it. It's like they're constantly playing a defensive game of chess. So I do all of those things that I just mentioned. I mentioned because they're on my mind and I've and I've laid the groundwork for them to possibly happen in a third book. Um, but I didn't write this one just to set up a third book. This one is it's it is a book unto itself. It's it is sure. storytelling pure and simple. Well, what was your writing journey that led you to writing your first novel? Oh, that's interesting. That's a, um, yeah, that I backed, I backed into becoming a writer. I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, but I was very shy and wouldn't let anyone see what I was writing. And, um, and I was doing theater. I did a lot of theater. I acted a lot in high school and then in college. And then in college, I realized, you know what? Acting is like a sucker's game because you only get to focus on your part. And it would be so much more interesting to focus on everybody's part. That means I ought to be a director. So I decided to become a stage director. And at that time, there was really a glass ceiling for female directors. And I thought, I need to become a film director. And so then I read all these how to become a film director books. Somehow I thought it would be easier to be a female film director than a female theater director. I do not know why I thought that. But um, so I read all the how to become a film director books. And they said the hardest thing is finding the first script, finding somebody to who will trust you with their their screenplay to make as your first movie. And I thought, well, that's easy. I'll just write a screenplay and then I'll film it myself. So I wrote a screenplay, never figured out the funds or the wherewithal to actually make it into a movie, but it won an award as an unproduced screenplay. And all of a sudden I had a director attached. I had an A-list actor attached. An agent picked me up. There was a producer. And I thought, well, this is easy. I'll just be a screenwriter. <laughs> So I moved out to Hollywood to become a screenwriter. And this is the story I'm about to tell is incredibly unoriginal. It happens to easily 50% of screenwriters. I showed up there feeling very pleased with myself because I had this award and I had this, like I had everything lined up. It was going to be brilliant and easy and fast. And then um, instantly everything fell apart purely for political reasons. Nobody's, nobody lost interest in the script but the politics around who was associated with what just made the whole thing fall apart. And I spent a year doing five part-time jobs, you know, like reading other people's films, picking up people's dry cleaning. It was just such a miserable existence. Um, and I holed up in my boyfriend's uh, house in the high desert north of L.A., and discovered this novel that I had started writing in college that I never showed anyone because I was too shy. And I had lived through enough stuff at that point that I finally understood how to finish writing that novel. So I decided instead of trying to write screenplays that I would try writing this novel. And the writer's block that I had had around the screenwriting instantly vanished. And I became obsessed and could not stop writing this book. Like I would, I would easily write 15 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And that, long story short, there's a whole story around the development of the writing of that novel. But long story short, that when I finished it, I showed it to my, um, to my 
LA manager who said, I know a literary agent that you should show it to. And that literary agent picked me up and sold it 10 days later to the woman who remains my editor to this day at HarperCollins. Wow, Wow, that's that's a great story. story. Yeah. (laughs) So long way around, but then very suddenly, you know, then then it all happened very quickly. So what was your writing process for Master of the Rebels? Did you outline the novel extensively before writing? Yeah, I I had to because it is such a complicated, because of the multiverse, it's not just that people are going back in time for certain periods of time, it's that they go back multiple times. So if, for instance, somebody goes back in time for a week, the way the rules, the rules that we set up are, if you go back and you spend a week in 1606, a week passes in today's world as well. So if somebody's spending a week in 1606, but they're spending it in four different versions of 1606. That means that only a week is ever passing in any one of the 1606s, but a month is passing in the contemporary world. So it required an enormous amount of, um, I had these huge butcher block papers that I would spread out on the floor and everything was different colors, um, different colors. And they would refer to smaller calendars where more details were. It was I, honestly, I think that I could, um, I feel like there's nothing that I couldn't organize now. Um, I feel like I could handle the pandemic response. I just, I'm, I've moved so many things around in so many different places and figured out what has to happen when. So first I had a basic idea of, of the overarching thing I wanted to happen. Then I sat down and did all of that um, organizing. And then that organizing let me break it down into little manageable blocks. But it took about three years to write the whole thing as a full job, essentially. So what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Um, the this single most important thing is to glue your butt to the seat. It's it's just and that sounds like such unoriginal advice, but it's, it's just true. Everybody has different kinds of problems. Everybody runs into different kinds of blocks, but everyone runs into blocks and everyone runs into challenges. Sometimes the challenge is that you get bored. And the only thing that matters is just showing up and continuing to do it. Um, I, I find, depending on where I am in the process, there are different pieces of advice I think are more relevant than others. One thing that I absolutely recommend is to have an outline. Know what you are writing to just like if you're running the Boston Marathon, it's helpful to know where the finish line is and how far away you are from it. I personally am a big advocate of knowing what the ending is that you're reaching for. The ending might change. In fact, I don't think I've ever written a book where the ending was precisely what I thought it was, rather smugly assumed I knew how it was going to end. It always ends up changing. But you need to have you need to have something to shoot for, at, at least. Um And then, so that's my sort of at the beginning advice. In the middle, it's all just a big old mess. And then at the end, my advice at the end is um, a a thing I like to do as excruciating as this sounds is I, I number all of the pages very clearly. So I, so, so that I can fix it at the end. And then I take it and I literally shuffle the pages so that I'm never reading. I'm not reading through the book. Each page I am reading as its own piece of writing. So once I know that the story and the characters and the dialogue and the arc and the themes, once I know that the big picture things are all there, 
Then I sit down and on a page by page level, I make sure that every single sentence sounds exactly the way that I want it to. Wow, that's great advice. So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh boy, let's see. Um, I am in the middle of listening to the audiobook of The Milkman, which won the um which won the Man Booker Prize recently. It's set in Northern Ireland. And I I am embarrassed to admit that I'm blanking on the writer's name. Um, she's a woman writer. She's great. I'm very glad I'm listening to it as an audiobook because I think it would be tricky to read as um to read on the page. Uh Anna Burns, that's her name. Um, and I also just finished reading John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie, which is wonderful. And I just started to read Dante's The Divine Comedy, which I never read when I was younger. Um, I don't I don't do a lot of reading of the classics these days. I try to keep up with what's contemporary. Um, my friend um, Jennifer Stile has a book called Exile Music that is going to land in my inbox any day now. And, um, and I'm going to I'm looking forward to reading that. And I also just read Room by Emma Donahue and um, and N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, um, the fifth season, and the and the Obelisk Gate, and the I can't remember the name of the third one. So my reading is all over the place. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Um, they can find me uh, at nicolegalland.com, N-I-C-O-L-E. G is in George, A-L-L-A-N-D is in David.com. They can also find me on Facebook. And I am of the generation where Facebook is the only social media I do, but I'm very active on it. There's a very specific age range that that's true of, and I'm in the middle of it. So my site itself is fairly static. Uh, it does have the book, but it doesn't have a whole lot of stuff. But the the Facebook author page is where I tend to post a lot of stuff and and if anyone wants to interact with me, that's the likeliest way to be able to do it. I th- And I think that that posts to Twitter. So I guess you could find me on Twitter as well, Nicole Gallon. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Nicole Gallon, author of the new novel, Master of the Rebels. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Nicole, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audio book of Master of the Rebels by Nicole Gallon. Available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. I am trembling almost too much to write this. At dawn, an elderly naked man appeared at our door, with cedar needles poking out of his hair. He greeted us with a wobbly bow and a confused smile, as if he were drunk. And he spoke in a dialect so strange and an accent so bizarre that we could hardly understand what he said. Because we live on the very edge of the village, we are accustomed to receiving travelers from Kyoto in need of shelter, but not of clothing. He is from either elsewhere or elsewhen, my wife whispered to me, eyes wide. There is glamour all about him. We invited him to sit on the veranda while he rinsed his feet and brushed the cedar needles from his hair. As he patted his feet dry, he looked up and about vaguely, studying the steep incline of the roof as if he were trying to calculate how fast it might shed its snow load. Wooden shingles, he said to us, as if this were new information. Not bamboo, 
That's interesting, isn't it? They must be very loosely attached to let the smoke escape. Of course, I said, wondering why he considered this a topic for discussion. Once he entered, he gazed at every mundane detail of our home with an expression of dazed wonder. The sanded wooden runners of the sliding doors. The tatami mats around the sunken hearth. The kettle suspended from the ceiling. Our small family shrine. Indifferent to his own nakedness, he made a circuit, glancing at us and smiling before returning his attention to whatever next fascinated him. I wondered if he was simple. Clothes, my wife hissed at me. And once I had fetched it, she presented him with my extra kimono. He accepted it with much bowing and thanks and apologies, seeming distracted and amused by the exchange, as if he were sleepwalking through a no play. Again, I wondered about his mental state. However, once he was clothed, he turned his focused attention to us his hosts. His accent and dialect remained a challenge to understand, but now there was a keen intelligence in his eyes. He introduced himself as Oda. He had chosen our home, he told us, because he had ascertained that my wife is a witch, and he requested her services to be homed by magic to where he had come from once he had completed the task that brought him to our village. Seiko was astonished by this situation, for she has never before received an elsewhen traveler. But of course she agreed. He told us he had come to examine a painted wooden box in the village shrine. We knew which box he spoke of. Legend says it was brought to the shrine centuries ago by a terrifying sea goddess with huge eyes and hair like fire. Sometimes she is said to be a Sukimono Suji, with a fox familiar, which explains her strange hair. We asked him questions. What was in the box? What did he want to do with it, and why? Pardon, but it is not allowed for me to tell you anything about that, he said. My wife said, Then you are surely from the future. And he bowed. We offered him tea and rice, which he accepted but only to perform the correct etiquette of a guest, for he now seemed impatient to begin his errand. We explained that many in the village visit the shrine each morning, and therefore we should wait until they had made their offerings and departed to their labors. Reluctantly, he agreed, and we passed the time in conversation of a most uncommon sort. For example, he did not ask questions about our Karen Sansui garden beside the river, but rather queried us on the engineering details of the dams upstream. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.